It's it's exactly 50-50. Oh, we we <sighs> all is, need to vote. We, our votes can make a, a difference. Lot of, a lot of Tigers fans, or or Dodgers fans. Or America's just on the Chris Shelton bandwagon. They've had so much, and they like it's quite, it. It's quite a bandwagon. But that's going to mercifully end things for extra points today. We didn't go over the water polo team scores. Yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a subpar time. So for everyone here in the studio, I'm Steve Lake saying good night, Michigan. This has been a production of WCBN Sports, 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor. And then right back to the era. Cogliano, Cogliano, but the shot on, he scores! Andrew Cogliano, at the top of the far face-off circle, risks a shot that I don't think Dominic McCary saw, and beats him over the left shoulder. Wolverines with another power play goal. They are back in front, 3-2. to two. You're listening to WCBN in Ann Arbor. A square, y'all. This is Jake and Jake at WBCN. John Kidd. That's WCBN. WBCN. WCBN. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor. Yeah, I was there during the 60s when the universe made something. All right. So, hi, guys out there in Ann Arbor. Now we're Shaky Jake Warden. Welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley, and uh, Gray Matters is on the air. Well, I once said that the uh, war between uh, the United States and Iraq was a war between a madman and a fool. At the time, of course, I thought Bush was the fool and Saddam the madman. Now we have uh, an article by Cy Hirsch, and he's been actually covering this Iran story uh, actually for about the last uh, nine months, because he's written before about this, that there are open discussions in the White House about starting a war with uh, Iran, of all uh, incredible things. Uh, I guess two wars for Bush in the... uh, Middle East slash Near East area of the world are just not enough. And as I predicted uh, over a month ago, if Bush were going to start a war with Iran, it would probably commence according to Karl Rove's schedule, which uh, I think will uh, certainly uh, coincide with the 2006 elections in which the Republican Party, of course, is looking a little vulnerable due to the uh, growing incompetence of the Bush administration and the inability of uh, Bush even to keep his own party in line on a variety of issues. The uh, details uh, of the story uh, that are are published in the most recent edition of The New Yorker, and Cy Hirsch, of course, uh, has made the radio rounds, the 
TV rounds today talking about this story. I haven't read it yet in the New Yorker, but uh, according to a summary of uh, what we basically know, he basically says that uh, so-called contingency plans have been moved to operational plans, the operational phase. And uh, this despite the fact that American intelligence, according to Cy Hirsch, uh, doesn't believe uh, that Iran would, would have a nuclear weapon for at least 8 to 10 years. So as he put it, what's the hurry? Israel, of course, thinks Iran may have a nuclear weapon within two years. And we'll talk a little bit about an interesting article that appeared in the London Review of Books several weeks ago regarding the uh, dominant uh, factors of the Israeli lobby and the Israeli government on American foreign policy, particularly in the region. We've certainly talked about this down here on Gray Matters over the past several years. Me and Jim Dwyer have uh, the origin, for instance, of the war in Iraq actually dates back to a Likud plan in 1995 involving Benjamin Netanyahu. Likud, incidentally, by the way, finished fifth in the uh, recent Israeli elections. And real quickly, uh, the Italian elections are looking too close to call, so we won't uh, speculate about what's going to happen there. But uh, this uh, Iran war plan has apparently been discussed in uh, high-ranking levels of the American government. According to Eric Schmidt's article in yesterday's New York Times, for instance, four Pentagon military and administration officials who have participated in high-level deliberations on Iran and were granted anonymity to speak candidly rejected the article's contention that the Bush was Bush administration was considering nuclear weapons and a possible strike. That's, of course, the sort of uh, spectacular um, headline in the story. Uh, Bush, of course, has dismissed this as, quote, wild speculation. But, you know, it's interesting. Uh, just uh, a week ago, a little over a week ago, the Associated Press reported that the Pentagon is planning on a test involving 700 tons of explosives in the desert of uh, Nevada, scheduled to occur on June 2nd as part of an effort to design a weapon that can penetrate solid rock formations in which a country might store nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction. The test named Divine Strike, I don't know what the heck a strike is, and I'm curious to know if that is a typo, and it's actually <laughs> Divine Strike, uh, because that would uh, just confirm that the Bush administration uh, euphemistically calls its military plans divine strike. Um, God has a plan. God advised Bush into uh, starting the war with Iraq, etc. Uh, the millennialists that are in the Bush administration uh, are certainly... Uh, not ubiquitous, but they're certainly present at the highest levels of the American government. And how interesting that, uh, in coincidence with the uh, revelation that Scooter Libby 
was sort of authorized to leak damaging information about uh, Joe Wilson's wife that emerged last week. Um, as Maureen Dowd put it, uh, Scooter Libby is now the good Judas. <laughs> Bush has instructed Scooter Libby to be his Judas Iscariot. P- please betray me. Uh, you will receive <laughs> divine recognition uh, from our father. Um, and these ideas that Bush has about this divine plan regarding the war in Iraq are actually in the uh, Bob Woodward book, uh, Plan of Attack. But uh, anyway, getting back to this test, I, I just find it interesting that the Pentagon uh, is planning this test at uh, the Nevada test site on June 2nd, and that it's specifically designed to... Uh, test a weapon that can penetrate solid rock because, of course, the Iranian nuclear program, to the extent that it exists, um, is allegedly underground and presumably under solid rock. And we've certainly heard reports in the past that the Bush administration has uh, considered using, quote, tactical nuclear weapons in the Middle East. Uh course, that underscores the fact that America is using depleted uranium shells, uh, both in the Middle East and in the former Yugoslavia, and that that is part of uh, our tactical approach. But um, the article by Seymour Hersh is important because it explores this notion of bunker-busting nuclear bombs against Iran's nuclear sites. Um, And this is what's interesting. When the Joint Chiefs of Staff later sought to drop the option, unidentified officials in the White House resisted, the article said. Of course, uh, Seymour Hersh is relying on anonymous sources, including former, quote, Pentagon and intelligence officials, as well as sources described as having ties to the Pentagon but no direct involvement in the decision-making. Presumably these are consultants uh, that work on these uh, scary plans, and uh, one wonders. But if the uh, attack on Iran uh, does coincide with the 2006 elections, uh, don't let it be said that Gray Matters didn't predict it here uh, months before it happened, uh, because I think all of the... uh, Stars are in alignment for uh, such an event. Um, And who can deter the United States? We've seen over the past uh, several months that the American high-ranking officials, specifically Condoleezza Rice and the president himself, are selling this idea of a war with Iran with the American public, much as they did um, preparing the American public for a war with Iraq. Uh, back in 2001, 2002, literally years before the war actually started. So this doesn't strike me as being out of the realm. Uh, It's certainly a uh, plausible um, scenario, and it certainly shouldn't be dismissed out of hand as readily as the president did today, apparently at the, uh, oh, I guess he appeared at the John Hopkins uh, University uh, International Forum on some such thing. Also, the big news today is he now is admitting that uh, he 
authorized uh, Scooter Libby to leak this damaging information about Joe Wilson vicariously through Dick Cheney, of course. Um, so Bush the leaker and Libby the good Judas apparently are in collaboration on all sorts of other uh, <coughs> political operations of a particularly nefarious nature, uh, which shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us one bit, uh, given the uh, Bush administration's track record on these sorts of matters. Um, so I guess we'll uh, see how this <coughs> Iran war plan plays in the media for the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, next couple of months. But um, I don't think it can be dismissed out of hand. Now, um, the other sort of interesting story today is this immigration, um, these immigration protests, which I won't get into. I mean, obviously, the media is, uh, mainstream media is conventionally uh, covering this uh, story uh, fairly comprehensively. And it's interesting, just a couple of weeks ago, um, an article appeared demonstrating um, that there is a sort of a disconnect about this, this notion that the Hispanic issue will somehow help the Democratic Party. It's been pointed out that the share of the Republican vote in the 2004 elections actually doubled between 1996 and 2004, it went from about 20% to 40%. And in the article by David Kirkpatrick that appeared in the uh, March 30th edition of the New York Times, he's got a breakdown of the states. And, of course, the four states that are most conspicuously um, confronted with the immigration problem are New Mexico, California, Texas, and Arizona, uh, simply because they uh, border Mexico directly uh, with the Rio Grande River as the so-called border. And the article shows the registered share of voters in the 2004 election in comparison to the population, and it's interesting to see those numbers because, for instance, in New Mexico, which is uh, the most heavily Hispanic state, in which 43% of the population is Hispanic, uh, only 16.6% are registered voters. In California, the second most uh, Hispanic state, at nearly 35%, only 6.8% voted were registered to vote in the 2004 elections. And in Texas, where the Hispanic population is, once again, almost 35%, 9.6% registered to vote. So these are very slim percentages of the Hispanic population, but in a few key states, they obviously can provide the margin one way or another of victory or defeat. And it goes down, you know, the top 10 states, which... In order are New Mexico, California, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, Florida, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, Utah, and surprisingly Rhode Island, uh, in which 10% of the population is Hispanic, and they account for 1.6% of the registered voters in the 2004 election. They also show 
uh, some other battleground states in the upcoming 2006 election, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Missouri, Montana, and Ohio. And in all of these states, Hispanics make up a very small percentage of the population and, in fact, make up less than 1% of the registered voters. So they're not much of a factor, obviously, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Missouri, Montana, and Ohio. Um, I bring this to people's attention only because I think that the political spin that's being portrayed on this, uh, James Sensenbrenner, of course, is the architect of the House bill that would, quote, criminalize immigration, uh, that has basically provoked the protests. And last week, of course, we saw the Senate um, break down. Uh, There was apparently an agreement That sort of fell apart at the last second. But this, of course, is not the end of the world. Immigration is a very complicated problem. And I don't see why there's any hurry to rush through a, shall we say, a bad bill. Um, The McCain-Kennedy, I believe uh, the co-sponsor in the House is a representative named Gutierrez, is not a amnesty bill, as the right-wing Republican critics claim it is. It's basically a, um, it, it's sort of a, you know, it's got these multi-layered, it's complicated, it's a multi-layered bill, it's too complicated to go in here, but it's not an amnesty bill. I mean, the people who are here illegally have to register, get in line, pay a fine, a, a civil infraction, and, uh, They have to get at the back of the line, not at the front of the line. So it is not an amnesty bill by any stretch of the imagination. The relevance, of course, of this article is that in future elections, to quote one expert here, quote, there is a big demographic wave of Hispanic kids who are native-born who will be turning 18 in the next who will be turning 18 in even greater numbers over the next three or four or five election cycles according to Roberto Suro, director of the nonpartisan Pew Hispanic Center. I don't know if that's connected, by the way, with the Pew uh, Center, but I'm guessing that it is. And uh, they also note, by the way, that Hispanics only cast 6% of the votes in the 2004 elections. But as they note, birth rates promise an immigration explosion and the number of eligible voters in upcoming elections. So it's really about the future. And, of course, people say, well, the Republicans paid a price for passing Proposition 187 in 1994, um, which incidentally passed, by the way. Um, And Pete Wilson, as I recall, was actually reelected. So I'm not too sure what price they paid in that particular election, but apparently... As the future wore on, they paid a price. But, of course, California has leaned more to the Democrats, not necessarily because of the Proposition 187 uh, situation, but more because of the demographics in California. California is the only state in the United States in which Caucasians represent less than 50% of the population. In other words, in California, Hispanics, Asians, and African Americans combined uh, outnumber so-called Caucasians. So the demographics in California are unique. And as I noted uh, in this, uh, from this article, in California, Hispanics only 
um, consisted of 6.8% of the registered share of votes in the 2004 elections, even though there are nearly 35% of the population there. So um, I think that there is a lot of, shall we say, misinterpretation of how this immigration issue is going to play. In a district such as James Sensenbrenner, don't call me Mr. Magoo and don't call me no Sensenbrenner, um, he probably represents a staunchly right-wing Caucasian district in Wisconsin. And coming across as a big old tough guy on the immigration issue will probably benefit him in the election. There's not going to be any backlash against him in particular. There may be a backlash in a few selected districts, um, but that remains to be seen. Um, so I wouldn't uh, overstate uh, the political benefit or, um, shall we say, detriment that either party will experience in any particular state. Um, Tip O'Neill once said that all politics is local. And to some extent, that's true. So uh, this is once again an, an open um, book with an unknown conclusion. And uh, it will be interesting to see if a compromise bill can be fashioned. And indeed, it, it still can. Um, the Senate has just gone out on a spring break. Uh, as far as I know, the legislation isn't dead. There merely was a, uh, a disagreement about whether or not amendments should be included uh, to the to the bill that was pending uh, that came out of the House Judiciary Committee, and to blame this on one particular party for breaking down the uh, the rules is silly. I mean, in my understanding, is the Democrats pretty much wanted open debate with the option of adding amendments. And the Republicans didn't, and Bill Frist is the one who, once again, didn't show much leadership on the issue. He, of course, has staked his political future presidential run on being tough on immigration and essentially agreeing with a Sensenbrenner approach to the immigration question. As for the protests, I think that... Uh, People have the right to express their uh, opinions here in the United States, and I don't think that they'll be much of a factor in the ultimate uh, outcome of the bill one way or another. Um, it's good to see that the Hispanic uh, political groups have, uh, shall we say, purified their uh, message a little bit. Uh, maybe uh, removing some of those Mexican flags was a good idea. Uh, there's certainly plenty of uh, demagoguery in this whole debate, and I think what is needed at the end of the day is some sort of process of controlled immigration um, that certainly is not as punitive as the Sensenbrenner approach, but uh, is by no means an amnesty, something resembling what came out of the House Judiciary Committee, which, uh, as we know, is a bipartisan uh, bill of sorts, and interestingly pits uh, John McCain against his uh, partner in the United States Senate, uh, John Kyle, who's one of the leaders of the uh, 
I don't even know what they're calling themselves. They probably want to remain anonymous. But the hardliners in the Senate that uh, keep characterizing this bill as an amnesty, as an amnesty bill, which it is not. Unemployment statistics uh, were released over the uh, weekend. Uh, nothing too remarkable to uh, report here. Um, obviously, there was an increase in jobs of 218,000. Actually, excuse me, that's the average per month that has been added since November. I guess the actual total was 211,000. And the unemployment level dipped just slightly. Mr. Bush, of course, uh, <clears throat> trumpeted this news as uh, claiming that it proves that his tax cuts are working, uh, that, as he puts it, tax relief has done exactly what it was designed to do. Yet some are now proposing that we raise taxes either by repealing tax cuts or letting them expire. Of course, what President Bush ignores is the massive uh, deficits that uh, have been racked up during his uh, presidency. And it's interesting regarding the success of these tax cuts, uh, even conservative um, economists are beginning to dispute this. Uh, Bruce Bartlett, a conservative Republican who favors tax cuts as a source of economic growth, has turned against the White House because he views its economic policies as reckless. Also argued that Mr. Bush's statement was misleading. Quote, tax cuts do lift the trend rate of growth over the long run, said Mr. Bartlett, who served in the Treasury Department under uh, Pear Bush. But, quote, tax policy doesn't affect business cycles. I don't see any evidence they are working, unquote. Louis Uchitala uh, reports, he said, by at least one standard, they are not working. March was the fifth anniversary of the current business cycle, which started with a recession just after Mr. Bush took office, and then a painfully slow recovery in which overall numbers of jobs continued to shrink until September 2003. By comparison with the four other business cycles since World War II that lasted at least five years, job growth has been considerably weaker in the current upturn than in the past. In the weakest of those earlier cycles, which began in the early 1990s, the workforce had grown 6.8% on the fifth birthday compared to 1.9% today. Quote, our expectations have been diminished, said Jared Bernstein, a senior economist at the Labor-Oriented Economic Policy Institute. A good month used to be 300,000 more jobs. Now it's 200,000 jobs. And interestingly, by the way, uh, both January and February had estimates downturned of 34,000 jobs in each month. So what we've got here, shall we say, is a shot that's uh, a little below par, a little above par, but not much. I guess if it's a golf shot, it would be a little bit below par, but... Um, there's nothing spectacular here. There's nothing disturbing here. But I would point out to Mr. Bush that there are some other big problems in the American economy. First of all, uh, since Bush started the war in Iraq, oil prices in America have doubled. Uh, oil prices now, indeed, just today, interestingly, went up on this uh, Iran warmongering and probably will continue to do so until a... Uh, shall we say, a policy of ruling this out uh, is issued by the White House, which probably will not occur. 
Also, interest rates are, are going up, and foreclosures uh, have increased over 10% the last three straight months. Uh, this is because of this so-called adjustable mortgage rate that is forcing many people who uh, bought houses uh, with inadequate down payments and under so-called introductory interest rate offers are facing foreclosure. So this is not uh, as rosy an economic situation as the president is reporting. Let's remember that the number of jobs that are now paying both health care and pensions is dwindling. Um, and I suspect by the end of the decade will uh, be less than 10% of all the jobs in America. Job growth is one of those misleading numbers sometimes. You've got to look at also jobs lost. Let's remember that Hurricane Katrina cost the economy something like 565,000 jobs. So it would take at least three or four solid months of above the, the normal increase in population to uh, recover those jobs that were lost, and that has not happened. Next week, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about this book that I just finished, uh, Truth and Duty, The Press, the President, and Privilege of Power by Mary Mapes, because um, I think it's an interesting analysis of President Bush and his ability to tell the truth, um, which uh, is increasingly becoming obvious that he doesn't tell the truth. I'll just read from her conclusion and talk more about this next week. Bush didn't keep his promise to the country. This is about his National Guard service. He swore he would fly military jets until May 1974 in return for being removed from the danger of being drafted. He didn't even come close, leaving the cockpit more than two years early. He didn't keep his word to pilots who did fulfill their service to the commanders who counted on him or to the military, which spent more than a million dollars teaching him how to fly. He left without giving the National Guard or the country their money's worth. He walked away from his duty. In the end, whether or not you believe the Killian memos or not, whether you believe in Bush's skill as world leader or not, the record unequivocally proves these truths. President Bush did not do his duty, did not fulfill his obligations to his country, and behaved in a manner that would not be tolerated for even one moment in today's overworked and battle-weary National Guard. The Guard troops serving now are making sacrifices each and every day that young George W. Bush never could have imagined when he, like so many other well-connected kids during the Vietnam era, was awarded a privileged spot in a thoroughly protected unit. This, of course, is um, Mary Mapes, who was the producer of the 60 Minutes 2 um, story about George Bush's National Guard service that um, erupted in September of 2004. It's an interesting discussion on how the right-wing blogosphere functions in our uh, media today and how they were successful at distracting the American public from the real truth. In the back, she goes painstakingly through the memos that were used to mesh Bush's actual record in the National Guard that confirmed the gist of the story. And on the issue of whether or not the memos were forgeries, she points out that in many of the analysis in the mainstream media and in the so-called blogosphere, faxed memos were used to compare uh, to the CBS memo as to whether forgery occurred, and forgery did not occur. Probably a copy did. 
Well, we are out of time. It's shortly after 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Do stay tuned. It's my understanding that Tex Mannheim is going to be your guest host tonight on Yazoo City Calling, coming up next right here on this fine FM station. Good night. Namely, WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and it is time for Yazoo City Calling. Got offered in town, resident out on Seventy Road. He got a nice little lake, 